Now you can turn with me to the book of Genesis. We've been looking at Genesis in our morning services and we come to a very well-known passage of Genesis 32. We read 1 to 23 a couple of weeks back, or a few weeks back now, and now we start at verse 24 of Genesis 32. Genesis 32 and verse 24. Um, we're looking at Jacob, and in Genesis 30 and 31, and the first part of Genesis 32, we see over and over that God is teaching Jacob to trust him and to acknowledge him alone. And that's the lesson that continues this morning in this well-known passage. And as well-known as this passage is, it is also mysterious. It's the only second time in Genesis that the Lord manifests himself in human form. He appeared to the patriarchs in many ways and at many times. But this is the only, the second time that he did so in human form. He did once with Abraham and now with Jacob. So let us pray before we read God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Protect us from being familiar with your word. Many of us have heard this story from our youth. We've heard it preached on and preached on well. It has spoken to our hearts. But as we approach you, Father, today, pray that you would remind us, even in the midst of familiarity, there's a mystery in this passage and much to learn. Holy Spirit, help us to learn. And if we come not trusting in the Lord Jesus, may this passage be one that you would use to speak to our very souls. And Holy Spirit, help me to speak well of Jesus, in whose name I pray. Amen. Verse 24, And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the place, the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat of the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. And may the Lord bless the reading of his holy and inerrant word. Jacob has just departed from his tricky uncle, tricky uncle Laban. But now he faces the greater challenge of meeting brother Esau. And last time we saw Jacob trying to preempt that and send gift after gift after gift after gift to Esau, hoping to soften Esau's heart. And then Jacob prayed a very powerful, very scriptural prayer. And Jacob, probably, most likely, more than at any other time, 
previously in his life is entrusting himself wholly to God. But he's now facing really the greatest crisis of his life. And he is tempted at this moment to try and trust in his own schemes and his own inventions and his own plan. He's tempted to fret when he should be calm in the midst of the promises of God. So he sent the caravans ahead and he remains behind alone. Having prayed to God, he senses the need to be alone. Maybe specifically for the purpose to pray again. And in, the, in that context, Jacob behind, caravans ahead, we see this extraordinary passage unfold. And in verses 24 and 25, God himself comes and initiates this struggle with Jacob. Verses 26 through 29, Jacob, though permanently wounded, goes on the offensive. But in verses 24 and 25, it is God who has taken the initiative. You see how it reads, a man wrestled with him. God is the one who took the initiative in this divine wrestling match. God initiated the match with Jacob. But in verses 26 through 29, Jacob turns and though incapacitated, he is now initiating. He refuses to let go in this wrestling match because he craves the blessing of God. And then in verses 30 to 32, we see perm three permanent reminders of this encounter with God that Jacob has to remind him of this permanently. So let's look at the passage together. First point, God will have our wills purged and redirected to himself. In verses 24 and 25, Jacob is posed with a situation that's beyond his ability to manipulate. No, no matter how many gifts, how much money he pours on Esau, he can't guarantee that Esau's heart will be changed towards him. No matter how much he grovels before Esau, and let me tell you, he really is going to do some serious groveling here. No matter how much he grovels before Esau, he cannot make Esau's heart be soft toward him. So Jacob is up against something that he's powerless to control. He cannot manipulate the situation. And it is interesting that God chooses to touch Jacob in the vulnerable area of his family life. Because in the dynamic of these family relationships, Jacob was faced with situations that he could not control. He could not manipulate. He could not alleviate the tension that was brought about in his home by having two wives, being given their maids as concubines. There was nothing that he could do to alleviate the tension which was thrust upon him there. The only thing he could have done was to refuse to have, take a second wife. But having done that, he was faced permanently, or at least as long as they lived, with tension in their home. We saw a few weeks ago, didn't we, that, I mean, how messed up it must have been that the two sisters named their children to spite one another. 
Wonderful situation, but it's our, it's our family. It's the children, it's Jacob's family. So God gave him a test here, an area of trials where he couldn't use his skills to manipulate himself out of it. And once again in his family relationship with Esau, he is faced with something he can't change. So thank God he's already resorted to prayer. And in verses 9 to 12, earlier in the chapter, he lifted up that beautiful prayer. But now Jacob wants to be alone. And this is the moment that God comes to him. And Jacob has come to an end of himself. He's come to an end of his own plans. He has no more plans. He has no more schemes. He has exhausted his bag of tricks. He's finally at the end of himself. And he's beginning to reflect on the way that he cheated Esau. The way that he treated his father. The way he is related to his family. Jacob has come to an end of Jacob. And it is at that moment that God comes to him. It's at that moment in verse 24 that a man comes and wrestled with him. And in verse 28 the man is identified by God as God. And Jacob in verse 30 identifies the person with whom he has wrestled as God. For I have seen God face to face and yet my life has been delivered. In the book of Hosea, the prophet Hosea identifies this man as the angel of the Lord. Hosea 12 verse 2, the Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. In the womb he took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favour. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us. The Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. So Hosea identifies this man who wrestles with Jacob as the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord is used in Genesis to represent a physical, visible manifestation of God himself. And especially to represent a visible, physical manifestation of the second person of the Trinity. And if you look at the second half of verse 24 and the first part of verse 25, the man who wrestles with Jacob does not immediately overpower him. He wrestles until daybreak. This is not... One of those matches that is quickly over. The match goes on and on and on until daybreak. So the man wrestling with Jacob does not immediately exercise extraordinary powers. And in verse 25 we're told the man does not prevail against Jacob. But even in the midst of this apparent physical human limitation with a touch... He cripples and disables Jacob permanently. And with that, you just get a picture, don't you? You get a sense of the power, the reserve of power that this man has who has been contending with Jacob. And as I said earlier, this is only the second explicit manifestation of God in human form in Genesis. The man who wrestles with Jacob is identified with God. He's identified as God, as God, who is the Lord of hosts by Hosea, as well as by himself and by Jacob, 
in verses 28 and 30. But he's also spoken of as the angel. And then, of course, in verses 24 and 25, we see these pictures of physical limitations, which do not belong to God. So orthodox divines in the past have identified this not merely as a theopony, which is a visible manifestation of God, but some have identified as a Christophany, that is a manifestation of the pre-incarnate Christ. Some conclude that this is the pre-incarnate Christ who wrestled with Jacob. John Calvin said that. I don't know if we can know that for certain, but whatever it was, it was a visible manifestation, physical manifestation, the angel of the Lord, which is the Lord himself. It was the Lord himself who wrestled with Jacob. He came face to face with God and God broke him. He broke him by smiting his hip. So Jacob is put in a position where he cannot win. He's given a physical limitation that will prevent him from being able to win in his own strength. Now all he can do is hang on. But it's the act of his wounding that reveals to Jacob who this is. And suddenly he realises with a touch of the finger, his own immobilisation, he's dealing with the divine. He's come face to face with the living God. And as God breaks Jacob, as he reveals to him himself and purges his will, he redirects his energies towards the love of God. God wanted Jacob's will. That will that had been so often asserted in his own interest, by his own trickery, by his own devious means. But God wanted Jacob's will, purged, cleansed, redirected to his glory alone. Redirected towards desire for him. Redirected towards love for him. And so... God had to bring Jacob to an end of Jacob. And Jacob needed to understand that the battle that was going on wasn't a battle between Jacob and Esau, where God comes in to help Jacob out of a bit of a fix. No, no, no. The battle was between God and Jacob. Esau was a sideshow, Esau was an occasion, Esau was a circumstance. Esau was an excuse, but the battle was for Jacob's soul, and the battle was for the glory of God. You see, in all of the trials of our lives, when we really wish things were different, there are always two battles going on. One is, will we trust God? Will we obey him? And the other will God be glorified in us? And just as in the story of Job, God's integrity was impugned by Satan, Satan came and said, have you con and God says, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan says, yes, but does he serve you for nothing? Satan impugns the integrity of God. And he said, the only reason that Job loves you like he does is because of the things that you have given him. 
And so Job does not realise it, but the battle that is going on in the destruction of Job's wealth, the destruction of his household, and then in the, then in the destruction of his health, is not a battle between Job and Satan, or between Job and other human enemies, or between Job and natural disasters, or between us and natural disasters. It is a battle for the integrity of God. And Job's trials are a sideshow in that great battle. The same thing here in the story of Jacob and the same thing in our lives. This is the most important thing. There's so much, isn't there, that we try and we have to be worried about. There's so much that the world is trying to do. You can see the world vainly trying to hold back death. You see everyone being frightened and fearful. But there is hope, my friend. There is hope that goes beyond the grave. There is a hope beyond wars. There is a hope beyond pandemics. And that is trusting in God alone. And that God would be glorified in us. And God had to bring Jacob to a point where he realises that no matter what happened tomorrow with Esau, the important thing is that Jacob trusts in God alone and that God gets the glory. That's the important thing, that you trust in God alone and that God gets the glory. That is the lesson we all have to learn. It is easy to say that, it is difficult to live that. So now is the time, before tomorrow, that we believe what God has said in his word, that we should trust him and about him, that he would get the glory. Secondly, God in his grace cultivates in us a desire for him alone. See, in verses 26 through 29, Jacob has been wounded and he goes on the offensive. He craves the blessings of God. And in that weakness, God cultivates in Jacob a desire for him alone. God does three things in this passage to disclose himself to Jacob. And it's interesting that he does not do so in a straightforward way, the straightforward way. When Jacob asks the Lord to give him his name, the Lord answers in a different way than Jacob asked him. God decides how and when and where he will reveal himself to us. But it's our job to have our eyes open when that revelation comes. Let's look at those three ways. First of all, God reveals himself by breaking Jacob. He revealed himself by touching and smiting the hip and producing that permanent impairment in Jacob. He teaches Jacob by doing this that Jacob must depend on him. It isn't Esau or Laban that Jacob needs to fear. It is God who he needs to fear. And, and that's really telling, isn't it, in a world where there is so much humanly to fear. But it is God who we need to fear. And that's why we should pray for our leaders that above all, they would fear the Lord. Larry Richard said in his book on Genesis, sometimes a wound is a very special act of God's grace. How often we need to be wounded because it is easy for us to trust in our own skills and abilities. Derek Kidner says, when God touched Jacob's socket, it was defeat and victory wrapped up in one. Isn't that beautiful? 
When God touched Jacob's socket, it was defeat and victory wrapped up in one. The impairment, the weakness, that thorn in the flesh, if we can speak of it in New Testament terms, that Jacob experienced, is the deceit that brings victory. Because in it, he realises his own weaknesses, his own needs. And that he, Jacob, the trickster, has to cling to God. That is his only hope. All he can do is hang on. In verses 27 and 28, he reveals himself again by doing what? By renaming him. This is the crucial point where Jacob becomes Israel. But look at the exchange. Jacob said, I will not go unless you bless me. And, and so God said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Jacob's change of name is a self-revelation of God. Who has the right to rename God's people? Only God. God renamed Abraham. God gave him a name that would suit him better for the fulfilment of God's promises. God renamed Jacob. He took away the name that was a reproach, the deceiver. How many times had Jacob heard a play on words on his own name? And God says, no, your name will be Israel. May God himself strive for him. That is your name, Israel. And by that change of name, it indicates a change in the inmost being of Jacob. And he identifies himself as the God of Abraham and Isaac before him, the one who changed the name of the patriarchs. Now, it's not literally he will never go by Jacob again. There's another episode later on in Genesis where he gets Israel again. So it's not that you could never call him Jacob, but in the sense of his identity and in what the name represented, he needed to shed that name and get a new one. Verse 27, when God says, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. It isn't because God didn't know who he was. He wanted Jacob to say that name one more time. Because remember what his name means. So the angels of the Lord says, who are you? And he says, I am the cheat. That's what his name means. That I am the one who supplanted my brother. He needed to own up to that one more time. He'd been a trickster his whole life. Twice he deceived Esau. And though Laban tried to play foul with him, he got the best of Laban. Now he returns wealthy. And he thinks, I can do this. I can figure my way out of this mess. I can trick my way out of this. What shall I do? Send droves and droves of gifts. By the time he gets to me, he'll be as soft as butter. And God said, no, no, no more Jacob, no more Jacob. A lot of us do not realise how self-reliant we are. But it's only because we're not desperate in that moment. When you're desperate, you realise how self-reliant we normally are. And when you lose control, when you cannot control the situation, when you lose your ability to plan and plot your way out of the mess you've made, then you realise how self-reliant I am, how selfish and how self-reliant I am. And God says, no more Jacob, time to be Israel. 
And then verse 29, he reveals himself in the third way, he blesses him. So he breaks him, he renames him, he blesses him. And Jacob responds by saying, tell me who you are, verse 29. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? You know who this is, Jacob. I do not need to tell you who I am. You know exactly who I am. But then God reveals himself to him just as explicitly as if he had said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and your God. He reveals himself by blessing him. I wonder if the reason that God does not say his name in that situation and just blesses Jacob is so that Jacob will realise that God himself is the source of all blessing. Why does God want to go before the dawn? Because of Jacob's protection, so that Jacob will not see God and be destroyed. Why does he not tell Jacob his name? Because he already knows it. And God emphasises it by revealing himself through blessing, that he is the source of all blessing. Jacob had a struggle. They were his desires and fears and his view that God was the one who could give him his desires and fix his fears. But God wanted Jacob to understand that Jacob's desires and fears were not the big issue. Jacob's trust in God and God's glory was the big issue. And so Jacob had to have a radical shift in the way he viewed God. His strength is still there. Do you remember a few weeks ago we saw how strong he was? Remember that? You remember when he met Rachel and all the testosterone was, was flowing? And he goes, ah, I can move this stone. Not a problem. I don't need people to help me. I can move it. He was a strong man. We see his strength wrestling to the break of day. And God uses those qualities, his strength, his belligerence, his tenacity, that he does not give up. He uses the abilities that he's given Jacob but they need to be turned, they need to be twisted, and they need to be, in a manner, weakened. He needs some of his natural strength to be crippled because he needs to be rid of his self-sufficiency. He needs to see, Jacob, it isn't your plan that will succeed, it is your prayer. So he struggles with God. That is who Jacob is. That is who God's people will be. That is who we are. And if we're honest, we wrestle, we struggle, we push against God. But here it means at least a good thing. Jacob wrestled with God until he got a blessing. This God in the flesh man doesn't overpower Jacob. He gives Jacob the worst injury he could ever give a wrestler. But it's a severe mercy because it's embracing this weakness that Jacob will now truly live. It's after he gets the weakness, he gets the blessing. And what God wants Jacob to see more than anything else is simply this. God's promises aren't changing, but Jacob is. I would, wouldn't, wouldn't you love that to be said about you today? That God's promises aren't changing, and then put your name in, but so-and-so is. He emerges from this episode weaker, but stronger. He is still shrewd, passionate, but he's more prayerful. 
He's dependent on God. He's going to get things wrong, for sure. But God is in the process of changing him. Giving him the blessing that he needs. Which isn't the blessing of prosperity, but the blessing of change. Isn't that wonderful? That God is in the business of blessing us by changing us. And in the midst of this wrestling match, you see Jacob's desires. You can almost see that physically turn towards God. His desires turn towards God. And he realises there's nothing more important than God's blessing. And it's not that God exists to help him in his agenda. It's that he exists for the glory of God. God doesn't exist to further our agenda. We exist to give him the glory. So how did Jacob move from this trickster, this conniving younger brother, to a flawed but increasingly faith-filled patriarch? It didn't happen overnight. He had to be rebuked by God. He had to work, work two decades for that scheming old Laban. He had to deal with warring wives who were naming their kids despite the other. He had to encounter a brother who wanted to kill him and looked to be on the warpath. He was cheated, deceived and often afraid. But 20 years later, here is the point. 20 years later, God is still God. But Jacob is becoming Israel. God is still God. But Jacob is becoming Israel. Maybe you're confused, you're hurting, you don't like what's going on in your life. Maybe you're like Jacob at the beginning of chapter 32 and you have a big fearful thing coming ahead. You have a big hairy Esau and 400 men with him staring you down. And you wonder, has God changed? Has God changed? No, but maybe you are. Maybe you are. We often come at God, don't we? What are you doing? What are you doing? You let me down. I don't know about your promises. I don't know what you're up to. God, you changed. You didn't used to be like this, God. It wasn't like this 10 years ago. But God wants Jacob to learn. And he wants us to learn again and again. God says, I am unchanging. But I love you enough that I want you to change. Who are you? Yeah, I'm the heel grabber. No, that is old, you're Israel. I am Jacob, no, you're Israel. He wrestles with God, strives with God, blessed by God, tenaciously holds on to God in faith. So for all of us who are in Christ, we know the blessing of having been forgiven by Christ. We're not just forgiven of our sins, but transformed that we can change and no longer be enslaved to our sins. God has not changed, but he's very much in the business of changing us. It's almost like a conversion, isn't it? It's almost like a conversion. Well, I thought I'd do something, I'd just read from this book here, because it's a book called The God of All Grace by Douglas Macmillan. He's a Scottish preacher and teacher. He was a shepherd. He used to know all of his sheep by name. He grew up in a Christian home. His father was an elder in the church. His family was very active 
in their local congregation. But as a teenager, he fell under communist teaching and he rejected belief in God. And he lived a very worldly life. And his mother died and she bore witness to him. It didn't soften his heart. But then he tells this story. And I'll just quote, I don't often do this, but I think it's so telling from this story. My older brother used to drive my father to the midweek service in a church six or seven miles away. But one Wednesday about that time, my brother was away at cattle sale and I got the job of driving my father to the church. I intended while he was at the church to go to the pub for a drink and then go and visit a girl. However, as we came near to the church, I had an idea. I asked my father, who will be preaching tonight? Is it that young preacher? Yes. I thought, this is my chance to find out what they're all talking about. I went in with my father. But as soon as I sat down in the church amongst those old people, I began to wonder, am I going mad? What if my mates found out that I spent a Wednesday evening in church? Then the door behind the pulpit opened and I got a shock. I thought all preachers were really old men, ready to crumble and fall into the grave. I know you just thought that about me. But they were religious because there was nothing better for them to do. But this young man was just a little older than myself. He had a broken nose. He looked like Freddie Mills, the British cruiserweight boxer, who was then champion of the world. At first, I was disappointed when he began to speak. His voice was low, as if he was afraid of the ladies in the church. His text was, Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased in goods and have need of nothing. And knowest not that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold tried in the fire. To this day, I am amazed he chose to speak on a text like that when he must have expected to address a group of old Christians. Anyway, he described what he found in the text, the spectacle of a soul worshipping itself. What took my breath away was he gave an exact description of me and of my life. I was living for myself, my pleasure, and for what I could accomplish. I drank. I enjoyed the company of the lasses, but there were also hard ambitions which had taken over my life. I lived for money, and I used to do the round of the Highland Games and featured in the prize list for the heavy events. I was especially keen on hammer throwing, and I thought I could in four years reach the top. But when I listened to that preacher in that small country church, all of those things lost their dazzle. The things that had become a focal point for my drive and ambition began to look so pathetic and empty. What was the point of giving my life to these things? The mask was being removed from my life. I wonder, did my old man tell the preacher about me? But no, I didn't even know if I was going to be there until I stopped at the door. I wasn't converted that night, though I promised the preacher I would come to the church again. It was three weeks before I saw him. I was driving along beside the sea in the old lorry we used at the farm when I spotted him walking beside the road carrying a Calagas cylinder. He had a mile to go. I said, will I stop or will I go roaring past him? If I give him a lift, he'll ask me why I haven't been back in church. 
In the end, I just stopped and said roughly to him, want a lift, Jock? He wanted the lift all right. He threw the cylinder in the back and climbed up beside me. And the first thing he said was, you didn't come back to church. No, I've been busy. You're a liar. That's a terrible thing for a preacher to say. But you are a liar because you weren't busy. I suppose you're right. He shouted above the sound of the engine, you know what? I think you're scared you'll get converted. No, I'm not scared. Actually, I would like to be converted, but I don't think I can be. Well, since that night, I asked God two or three times to convert me. Nothing happened. We got to where he was staying. He said, come in. I went in with him and he talked to me as no one had ever talked before. And he said, if you're really serious about this, what about going down on your knees and we'll ask God to change you? I wasn't keen, I was embarrassed. But then I said to myself, I want this, if I can get it. So I went on my knees. At first he wanted me to pray, but there was no way I was going to pray with him there. So I said, you're paid to do pray and you pray. And he began to talk to God as if he knew him. And he quoted John 3:16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I had known these words all my life, but as he quoted them, it was as if someone drew back curtains and light came into a dark room. I understood these words in a new way. I saw that Christ had finished all that was necessary for my salvation. I didn't have to do anything to save my soul. I got hold of his arm and I said, say that again. He stared at me, say what again? That bit about God loving the world, say that again. I said, does that mean that if I believe that Jesus is the son of God and he died on the cross at Calvary to save us from our sins and trust him because of that, I will be saved. He says, yes, that's just what it means. I said, it can't be as simple as that. And although I was arguing like that, I understood the way of salvation for the first time in my life. A great peace began to flood into my heart and stillness came over to me. And then I thought, that's all right, but you know how a Christian's supposed to live. I began to think of all the things I could not do. And he said, what's wrong? I said, I don't think I could live like a Christian. I'd have to give up too much. Listen, Douglas, you think through everything you feel you'd have to give up Think about it carefully. And then he said, in this hand, I'll give you everything you're afraid of losing. And in this hand, I give you Christ. He didn't make it easy for me. I felt I'd sat there for 10 minutes, thinking deeply about all that was involved. And then suddenly I knew which I had to take. If I can really have Christ as my saviour, I'll take him. And as soon as I said that, my heart was filled with joy and love. I suddenly remembered my father. I dropped him off in the village at two o'clock. He was going to collect his pension and visit a friend. Now I was to pick him up at four o'clock. It was now 20 past seven. I said to the preacher, man, I've forgotten my old man. He's been waiting for me for three and a half hours. I jumped into the lorry and went roaring back to the bungalow where my father said he would be. The lady came to the door and led him, me in. I hurried ahead of her into the living room. My father was sitting opposite. As soon as I came in, he got up, crossed the room, took me in his arms and said, Douglas, thank God. Why, you've been converted. He said, I could see it in your face that my prayer had been answered. 
And so I just read that because I think it was so, so special about the gospel and uh, how God dealt with Jacob that night the way that he dealt with Douglas McMillan. He held out all the things that he wanted in one hand and then he held out himself in the other. And he said, Jacob, who is it going to be? And every single one of us faced that challenge. And Jacob chose right. May the Lord bless the word for his glory. Amen.